Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dendi. I am a 10-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. This podcast is about sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who made it on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Hello and welcome to Navigating Cancer Together. My name is Talea Dendi, and today our very special guest is Maureen Cures. Maureen is an RN and she is the CEO of RadiantMorning.com. She is on a mission to guide families to decide, document, and discuss their final chapter plans to bring peace for those who live on. Now she facilitates family conversations and leads virtual group workshops to replace drama, trauma, and chaos with calm, ease, and peace. I think that we all could use some help from Maureen (laughs) in those areas. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Oh, thank you, Talia, for having me. It's my pleasure. So Maureen, why don't we dive right in? Um, Please tell us a little bit about your background. Well, my background, I have been a nurse for, gosh, almost 38 years. That's hard to believe. Um, But I got my very first nursing job on an oncology floor. And, you know, I didn't know anything really about death and dying. And uh, to me, I thought, oh, that's a scary place to work. I don't really want to work there because people die. And I didn't, my family, we didn't talk about it, but over, you know, that first year I found that it wasn't scary at all. It, you know, it was really, the patients were amazing. Their families were amazing. And I realized that that end of life journey wasn't as scary as I thought it was. And it was actually a time where people could come together. They can say what needs to be said. And that there was a lot of peacefulness about it. Wonderful. And I just fell in love. <laughs> wonderful. That is so wonderful. And so what really prompted you to become an oncology nurse, you know, um, when you started your nursing career? Because well, it sounds like you didn't really plan on being an oncology nurse. <laughs> I did not. And at the time I graduated from school, there were no jobs for nurses in the state of California where I was. I mean, my friend and I, we went up down the West Coast and uh, I ended up getting this job and I thought, I'm going to get my year's experience and get out of here as fast as I can (laughs) uh, because I wanted to be a flight nurse. I wanted to be a nurse where I transported critically ill patients, you know, from one place to another. I had my whole path planned out. You know, I knew exactly what I was going to do and I had to do one year of a med surge rotation and oncology happened to be it. So I thought, okay, I'll use it as a means to an end. But I ended up staying there for most of the majority of my nursing career has been in end of life. And um, like I said, I fell in love and I never did fulfill my uh, early on dream of being a flight nurse because I got so much fulfillment out of doing what I was doing with, with patients. Um, 
had, you know, with oncology, I worked bone marrow transplant hospice, and it was just also fulfilling to me. I can't imagine having not done that journey. Isn't it amazing how we start out with our own plans, but God has something totally different in mind for us? He just laughs and says, oh, no, no. (laughs) Exactly. I didn't know that I would be comfortable and good at talking to people about end of life and to talk to them as they were dying about dying. And um, it brought a lot of peace to me and a lot of peace to my patients too, and their families. And I'm still in touch with family members from people I took care of, you know, almost 40 years ago with their children. And so it was very fulfilling. That's wonderful. And the fact that you were able to, and you still are able to just create that sense of peace and calm for people at a very tough time in their lives, that's that's so important. And you talked about, you know, at first you were not really too excited about taking this career path. And so that leads me to this question. What are some misconceptions that, you know, people may have about end of life and end of life planning? Well, some misconceptions that it's scary. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about end of life that it's going to be painful. And that if you, misconceptions about end of life planning, there's a lot, but, um, you know, if you don't talk about it, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things that's a hundred percent in this life is that we're going to die. And um, so we just can't get out of this life alive, but the more we plan for it, the more we can hope to have our wishes fulfilled. It doesn't always work that way, but the more that we can plan and talk about it, the more chance there is for things to happen the way we want them to. And, um, but yeah, just, I think that speaking of dying, isn't scary. It doesn't manifest death. It mm-hmm. just helps us to understand it better, understand our thought process and how we, how we became the way we are around talking about death. Like my family, as I told you, we never talked about it. My grandpa died. I remember my mom crying. I remember going to the funeral mm-hmm. and, but we didn't talk about it. And I was a child at the time, but, um, that influenced me. That shaped my belief about dying and end of life. Um, so I had this opportunity <laughs> that it was not real thrilling to me, but it turned out to, to just be so much more than I ever thought it would be. So it kind of came full circle for you, it sounds like. And, you know, too, I'd like to add that even own experiences in my personal life with death It just seems like when someone passes away, it brings out the worst in people, especially if the person who has passed on hasn't left any instructions or their wishes or anything like that. It just creates so much tension and like you say, drama. And it's it's hard for people that are trying to grieve. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. It prolongs grief and it makes grief messy and and complicated instead of being healing. I mean, we're always going to grieve when someone dies. Like my dad died 12 and a half years ago. I still Mm -hmm. grieve him to this day, you know, but it's a different, gentler kind of grief, which um, so often when we don't plan, when we don't talk about it, it's, it, it just makes us, um, have this icky, icky grief. Like it's scary. It's something that just won't go away. I know looking at myself 
versus say my mother who didn't want to talk about my dad dying. My dad and I had a lot of in-depth conversations. And so watching our, my grief process, even my siblings grief process and my mom's grief process, they were all so different. And I'm so grateful. I had the courage to talk to my dad about it and that I could share that journey with him. Because one of the things I've also found from working with people that are dying is that they, they know they're dying. And they mm-hmm. often want to talk about their life and their life experiences. And um, there's something called life review that as a hospice nurse and hospice volunteer, that's a big thing with hospice, but to review different um, periods of our lives and to find that, you know, we had meaning and purpose, that our life meant something is so important to people. So I'm so glad I had those conversations with my dad. That's wonderful. But it made my grief much more peaceful than, let's say, my mom's, (laughs) where she struggled for a long, long time. Yes. And you know, Maureen, that actually makes sense because in my mind, that was another way for your father, you and your father to bond, you know, before his passing. So it was, you know, there's one moment, my dad was a man of few words, you know, he, I used to <laughs> talk to him almost every day. He was in California, but it always said, how are the boys? How's the weather? And what's the price of gas? And we, you know, that's what he'd always want to know. And so we'd have these short conversations, but um, they got longer as he progressed through his disease. And I remember I wrote him a letter about what he meant to me and the impact he had had on my life. And now I'll get all teary. But um, mm-hmm. I remember I was, I was going to take our two kittens to my cousin's house uh, because my dad had taken a turn and I was going to, um, we were going to go down for Easter to his, to my parents' house instead of my husband's parents' house in the Midwest. And um, my dad called and he started talking like he sharing things that he had never shared before. I had to pull over on the side of the road. I thought it was going to be the normal, you know, how are the boys? How's the weather? How's the price of gas? And, um, and that is a conversation that I will cherish the rest of my life. And, and that's, you know, that's what starting these conversations, that's what the gifts that we can be given. And that's exactly what I was going to say. He left you with the gift. Mm. And what I really admire too is that he was willing because like you said, he probably knew that his time was coming to an end and he was willing. He wanted to open up to you and and share things with you. So in some instances, that's a two-way street where both, you know, both people have to be at a place where they're open and then the other person's willing to receive and help facilitate that as well. Yeah. And you know, like I cried with my dad that day. Um, and that's okay. It's okay yeah. to cry and let them know that, you know, it's darn sad that they're not going to be in this world with us anymore. And people are afraid to do that. I've seen over time mm-hmm. uh, that they're afraid to let the other show, you know, to show their emotions to the person that's dying. Yes. Well, yes. you know, gosh, uh, I'd want people to know that I, made, I mean, I'd want to know that I made a difference in people's lives and, mm-hmm. and it's okay to show what ever. And, you know, sometimes emotions aren't good and um, it's okay to share those too. And to make peace. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the gifts, it's funny because back when I first was an oncology nurse, you know, people didn't survive cancer like they're doing mm-hmm. today. And there's been such strides in cancer treatment. 
And um, I look at that and I think, but it gives us the gift of time Mm -hmm. to say what needs to be said to, you know, seek forgiveness and to forgive others. And it gives us the time to say, you know, say what's on our heart and say goodbye, which so many people don't have the time because they're afraid to start these conversations or, you know, it's when someone dies suddenly, Mm -hmm. that's hard, Um, but that's why we need to live our lives. Like say what needs to be said as we go through our lives. That is so true. And it's so important because a lot of times when people, the, the family or loved ones or friends that are left behind, it's like, it leaves a void because they're like, I wish I would have known, or I I wish I would have known what this person was thinking or how they were feeling or, and you just don't get that closure sometimes, unfortunately. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I had a cousin that I was close to and he died suddenly. He dropped dead of a heart attack. He was, he was in his late forties, but um, he'd been trying to call me that the weekend that he died. And we were away and sometimes he would talk and talk. And I thought, oh, I'll call him on Monday when I'm back. (laughs) Well, he died. And, you know, so Uh. I felt guilt over that, not taking his call. And, um, but then I thought, no, he knew exactly how I felt about him. And Mm -hmm. he knew that I loved him no matter what was going on in his life. And, uh, but still I had that regret. Although I don't think we should live with regret, but there was that Mm -hmm. little moment, like, why didn't I take his call? Yes. But we can't anticipate that. But I I did have the peace of mind of knowing that he knew how I felt. That's a great point, Maureen, because there have been times where, you know, people have reached out to me and they're, I know that they're long-winded. So I'm like, okay, like you said, I'll take that call tomorrow or when I have more time to just kind of sit and focus on the conversation. And I could see where a person would feel guilty in that scenario. But I also like the way you reframed it and said, you know, because of our relationship, my cousin knew how I felt about him. And so I think that's very important for the audience to really um, take heed to that and not um, in those situations, not carry so much uh, regret or guilt. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think regret is a wasted emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, if we could learn something from it, um, from what happens, like for my cousin, I might be more inclined to take someone's call that's long-winded and say, I can't talk right now. We're on vacation. Can I call you on Monday? Or we're away with the family for the weekend. Can I call you on Monday? Um, I've been more inclined to do that than to just let it go to voicemail. But um, so, you know, as long as we learn and grow, we shouldn't have regret, even when things Mm -hmm. didn't go the way that they maybe should have, or we wished they had gone, because we can always say we should have done, we should have done, what's it called, shitting on yourself, Um, you know, I should have picked up that phone, but I didn't, Mm -hmm. and there's no way I'm ever going to change that, so all I can do is do better next time. Wise words, thank you. So Maureen, being an oncology nurse, what do you see as some benefits that can come from a cancer diagnosis? I think that it makes people reprioritize their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, what they thought was important 
all of a sudden there's not much meaning to working yourself 27 hours a day, you know, um, that I've, I've seen people that have really taken a hard look at what's important and restructured their lives and thought, mm -hmm. I'm going to give more time to those that I love. I'm going to travel more. I'm going to do the things that are important to me because all of a sudden when you get that cancer diagnosis, your life is finite, you know, even though mm -hmm. all our lives are finite, but it becomes yeah. so clear in that moment that, oh my gosh, I have something that can kill me. And right. I, what have I done? Have I done all the stuff that I want? That's why I love bucket lists. Yes. And I think that we should all make them. It also gives us what I was saying before, the time. It gives people the time to say what needs to be said. Mm -hmm. There's a, a hospice uh, palliative care doctor, Ira Bayok. Mm -hmm. um, and he has a book that, the, oh gosh, now I'm just blanking on it. But really <laughs> the four most important things, that's not what it's called, but it's to say, um, I, I forgive, you know, please forgive me. Mm -hmm. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. And, um, yes. I would also like to add if someone is dying, goodbye to that. And, um, I think those are really, that's the gift that cancer gives us the ability to forgive people. Like I was saying earlier, but also to do the things in life that will bring us meaning volunteer, yes. you know, to mm -hmm. be able to volunteer. I've had uh, one of my, my favorite people, he had two wives die of cancer and hospice was involved with his second wife because hospice was relatively new back in, you know, the eighties. Um, his first wife had died in the early seventies and hospice mm -hmm. was just, it was around, but not like it is today. And then his next wife died in the early eighties. And it was such a different experience that he ended up volunteering for hospice oh, and nice. his wife had volunteered with him until she took a turn and ended up as a hospice. Um, I mean, she'd been on hospice, been discharged and then, um, and then had to go back on hospice, but it was such a gift to them, to this man and to his wife that he kept volunteering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's so important. And, it does. As a cancer survivor myself, I can say, Maureen, that it does make you reprioritize your life. Because before, to me personally, death was something that was down way down the road. But when you get that diagnosis, it's in your face. Mm -hmm. And you have to face it. And so it does cause you to stop and think and say, hey, right now at this moment, what's important? And it wasn't like you said, working long hours. It wasn't, you know, getting um, irritated because someone cut me off in traffic and all those little things that we've allowed to annoy us. So that is so true. It forces you to reprioritize your life. And, you know, it gives you time to get your affairs in order. Mm -hmm. um, whether whether you are uh, a cancer survivor or whether you're not, it does give that time to take care of the things, you know, get your estate planning in order, get the things, uh, what legacy do you want to leave? What mm -hmm. legacy do you want people to, you know, how do you want people to remember you? You can get all of that in order because there's time to do it. It's yes. shocking once the shock wears off and you think, okay, let me 
let me get this stuff done just in case. That's so true. And that's the pro that's how it happened. <laughs> it's like, okay, now, now's the time more than ever to get those things in order. And so touching on that, Maureen, is there anything else um, that would fall under the category of get your affairs in order? And what else is important? Well, I think that um, the most important thing health-wise, from a health standpoint, I think full estate planning is very important, but most people think, oh, I don't have anything or I don't mm -hmm. have enough money. So they don't take care of that will and, um, you know, how to distribute their assets, things like that. And people have more than they think they do, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, so I'm a fan of full estate planning, but at the very minimum, get the advanced care planning documents done. That's the power of attorney for healthcare document and the advanced directives, meaning what you would want done if this happened, if you were unable to speak for yourself. You want that one person that can speak for, on your behalf and because they know what you would want because you've had these conversations. You want to um, have it written out in that advanced directive, also known as the living will. Most people know it as a mm -hmm. living will, but it spells out, would you want to be put on life support? Would you not? Or uh, let's say that there was a 50% chance you could get back to how you were if they put you on life support for whatever period of time. We can determine too. We could say, I'll be on life support. Most people think life support is a ventilator, you know, with the breathing. <laughs> yes. But life support is also tube feedings, dialysis. Um, so there's other parts of life support, but in this case, just the ventilator. But, you know, um, to say, okay, no, I wouldn't want it at all. Yes, I would. Um, or I would with this parameter. So we get to choose and we get to um, learn about this mm -hmm. and decide what would, would be right for us. But the, the more we can give a roadmap to our families and those that matter most to us, the more of a gift we're giving. I agree. I agree. That takes so much stress away because there's already already enough stress, but then it's just like, okay, trying to remember maybe brief conversations about, okay, did this, do they say that they wanted to be on life support or no, didn't they? Or it, it's just too much <laughs> at that time to try to figure out. The great thing about our advanced directives, um, with a will, you know, you do have to go through an attorney and get that mm -hmm. done. But our advanced directives, meaning what we want done at the end of our life, we could change it as often as we want. Yes. <laughs> you know, exactly. those are documents that you can get off the internet um, for free. In Washington state where I am, it has to either be witnessed by two people or notarized. It doesn't have to be both. But um, so I just had surgery in October. And it was the weekend before, and my husband had actually planned to go see our son. And he's like, I shouldn't go. I said, yes, you should. I'm not going until Monday. Go and spend the weekend. But I thought, you know, I, I have changed a few thoughts um, mm -hmm. on my advanced directive. So I pulled up a copy off the internet and wow. I filled it out and put some changes just in case, even though I'm healthy, I didn't think there would be complications, but when one goes in for surgery, one never knows what's going to happen. Right. So, um, my, another son's fiance and her twin sister happened to be coming over, um, 
So I said, hey, can you guys witness this for me? So I went over it with them. I first called my, one of my sons is my second alternate um, healthcare agent. If anything were to happen to my husband and he couldn't step up. So I called him and said, okay, are you sure you're still willing to do this? Cause I'm changing this. And he said, yes. I said, this is all I'm changing that you know what, I'd be okay being in a wheelchair, where before mm -hmm. I thought, no, I'd have to be up and ambulatory and being mm -hmm. able to do my own activities of daily living and taking care of myself. But as I've aged and gotten older, I thought, you know, no, I think I would be okay as long as I knew who I was and who I'm with and could converse, then being in a wheelchair is okay for me. So I wanted to put that in there just in case. Nice. Yeah. And you know, you, I really like that because that's not something that we think about when we go in for surgery is that, okay, before, is there anything that I want to change in my healthcare directive? Like we, yes. I don't think about that. So thanks for planting that seed. And um, if I ever have to, you know, going for surgery, I can say, okay, before, let me just review what I have in place. Is this still right. good? And that's what I said, you know, it's so easy. I said, we're the, we're the, um, we write the story of our lives and we can change it anytime we want <laughs> with these healthcare directives. So it's as easy as that, but it's also as hard as that because we don't want to think that. You don't want to think of going in for a pretty routine surgery and having something major happen, but. Yes. Yeah. But you never know. But you you just... never know. And it does. And these are for the what ifs of life. What if I'm in that accident? What if I have a problem with the anesthesia and don't come out of surgery, being able to mm -hmm. know who I am and where I am. So, yes, you know, Maureen, this makes me think about something that you shared um, with a group um, that you were speaking with that I was a part of, and it had something to do with if you are um, in an ambulance or something like that, and it's their job to make sure that they keep you alive. And you were saying that there was an extra step you have to take, I believe. Yes. Um, and so that might be important for people to know and also note that when they are getting their affairs in order. You know, there's something called the Portable Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, PULST, P-O-L-S-T. And every state has their own form. Usually they're a bright color. Our, ours here in Washington is a bright like neon green. And those are like you and I wouldn't qualify for a pulse because we're, we don't have some life limiting illness. Usually it's someone mm -hmm. that has a life limiting illness that usually is within a year or so of oh, okay. life expectancy. But um, meaning that if they're at home, let's say they have chronic heart disease and they're at end stage um, heart failure mm -hmm. and they know they're probably only going to be alive a year or so they should have that form and put it up where if the paramedics are called they legally have to start cpr even mm -hmm. if someone is a do not resuscitate that's a big thing dnr do not resuscitate mm -hmm. but that's only in the hospital that is only valid in a hospital setting. So this pulsed form is the only thing that paramedics across the nation can follow legally to not perform CPR, to not resuscitate a person. So that's why usually if it's an elderly person or someone with, you can be younger and have a life limiting illness. Mm -hmm. you, can be, you have cancer, end stage cancer. Yes. And they will 
either look on the back of the front door is a common place, but the most common place is the refrigerator or a kitchen cabinet. And they'll do a sweep and look for that first to make sure um, that they don't resuscitate someone. Thank you. There's for also sharing little that. wallet cards that they can take. You can take with you in case something happens when you're out. And that happens all the time where people will maybe have a heart attack and they could be near end of life. They could have been wanting to be do not resuscitate, but they collapse in a grocery store. Let's say mm -hmm. that happened to my um, friend's mother and she had to be mm -hmm. resuscitated and she did not survive the resuscitation, but it had to be done because legally they have to. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Another I just thought thing, that was important. Yeah. Another thing that I would like to share if I have just a minute, is mm -hmm. the do not resuscitate order. Uh, let's say you're going into surgery, but you're a do not resuscitate. And um, the DNR, ask your surgeon, will this DNR be enforced in surgery? Because oftentimes they will negate the DNR for surgery. Um, and you could end up being resuscitated in the middle of surgery which happened to a patient of mine. He had a blockage and they were trying to give him some relief, but he um, was a do not resuscitate. But during surgery, he was a full code. It's called full code, mm -hmm. they'll do full resuscitation. So make sure if you want, if you know you're near the end of life and you would not want to be resuscitated and they're doing something to relieve your, your discomfort, um, to make sure that that DNR is still enforced in surgery. Okay, great information. That that's a lot, <laughs> but um, those are things that people need to know. Yeah, and that we're not, you know, often educated on, you know, making sure that we have those specific details covered. Yes. Yeah, you. I would. You know, I until that day, I never would have known that, and I'd been a nurse for many, many, many years. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And so, Maureen, what are some consequences that you've seen from individuals and families that were unprepared for death? I've seen uh, fighting. I've seen disagreement. Uh, I've seen people kept on life support that probably would never have wanted to be. But mostly it's the fighting within the families and the fractured families because they disagree on what should be done or the regret that they did something that they shouldn't have, um, you know, that they took their mom off life support, maybe they shouldn't have, or they kept her on life support. And so living with that regret that you did the wrong thing is, is big when you don't have these important conversations, but usually it's family discord in some way or another. Mm -hmm. And we hear that so often. And it's so unfortunate because that's a time when people need to come together and really nurture each other. Um, but like you said, there's so many different factors that that cause that fighting intention. Yes. And uh, it can be really hard on the person who's the decision maker, the, the healthcare power of attorney, also called healthcare agent, um, or there's so many surrogate, there's so many different words, but that person that has to make the decision, if she's the only one or he's the only one that knows the wishes of the person they have to make the decision for, that can cause terrible dissension in the family where they're pitted against the person that has to make this important decision. So that's where these conversations 
as a family unit or, you know, the family can be loosely, uh, it's a loose term. It's those that matter most to us. Bring in the mm-hmm. friends, bring in people that you care about, that you want them to know what you would want in different scenarios. And Maureen, how would you advise that families and, you know, friends, people that are you're close to, how do we start those conversations? Well, uh, <laughs> I love starting. I love starting conversation. In fact, I have a free giveaway, seven prompts to get the conversation started. But, um, you know, first of all, never blindside people. Don't invite them over and then just make it all about end of life. <laughs> invite them. Either call up or or um, send out a little invitation. I've been doing my end of life planning and I would like to discuss it with all of you. Or it could be that you're like, my mom doesn't like to talk about death still. She's 85, but she doesn't want to talk about it. She's going to just go to sleep one night. Um, and that will be it. So if only that, that's what like, I'm that simple. Um, so, you know, to say, Hey, uh, some, you can use a, uh, prominent celebrities died. And I, you know, it made me think about what would you want if you were in her position or his position or um, gosh, my coworker's father just died of a heart attack. You know, it made me thinking, what would you want if that happened? Or you could say, hey, dad, I'll buy you a beer after a round of golf. If you'll like share what you'd want with to be done mm-hmm. if anything happens to you and you can't make decisions for yourself. So there's so many different ways to start the conversation, but I always think once get all your advanced care documents done and then invite everyone over, but tell them what it's about. Invite them over for pie and coffee or, you know, <laughs> uh, beer and pretzels, whatever your, <laughs> your choice is, but don't blindside them, ask them to come and then ask them to share in that conversation. That's, that's great advice not to blindside someone. And I could see where that could go wrong in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I do want to ask you is for people, you know, you mentioned your mother for people like your mother who don't want to talk about it, but you want to talk about it and get answers. How do you navigate that? How do you work through that? You, you know, just gently and, and, um, with my mom, I would just tell her, mom, gosh, it's important to me to be able to honor and respect your wishes, but I need to know that what they are. So would you ever be open to having that conversation with me? Well, she'd give me bits and pieces. So I'd just take the bits and pieces, but then I also have three siblings. And, um, so it was my mom, so then I disseminate, okay, this is what mom's saying. Um, and when we'd all get together, I would try to do it, to get her to talk a little bit about this. So, you know, I had to be very respectful that she doesn't like to talk about this. So I did it gently, but then my mom back, uh, about a year ago, uh, was diagnosed with COVID and she had just mm-hmm. turned 84. And, um, so all of a sudden the game changed. And I called her and I said, mom, I am your healthcare agent, the one that has to make decisions. And right now you just have a bad cough, but five hours from now, we might have to make a decision to put you on a ventilator or not, because that's how quickly these things are changing. And I said, so I'm gonna give you three different scenarios and I'm gonna call you back in one hour. 
and I want, I said, I, I need to know this so I can honor what you would want done because otherwise I can only guess from my perspective and not yours. And so I gave her the three scenarios and I called her back in an hour and she said, I don't want to be put on a ventilator. I said, okay, great. Mm -hmm. Now I know. And I said, and I'm going to tell your kids too. And I said, it'd be great if you texted them and said this, if anything happens. So they all know from you. So she did that. And luckily it never came to that. She just kept her bad cough for a few few days and then improved. But, you know, that's one of the things with COVID that's brought to light. Things can change so quickly. Mm -hmm. So true. And now more than ever, it's very important to have those things in place. Yes. Yeah, and to have these conversations so that if it does happen, I mean, I'm glad I had already started it with my mom um, over the, you know, over the years trying to draw things out of her. But, you know, I knew I would make the decision, but I wanted all my siblings. I wanted us all to know and to be on the same page because I have two siblings that are um, very emotional, which I'm very emotional, too. It's not easy to make Mm -hmm. these decisions, Uh, but two that would have had a really hard time. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. And so Maureen, when you work with your clients and families, what does that process look like? Can you um, briefly walk us through that for people who may be interested in coming to you for support? Yes, thank you so much for asking. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a few different ways. I have a five-week class that I put on virtually, and I've just turned that into an evergreen class, meaning that it's do it at your own pace, where we have ongoing um, support twice a month with question and answer sessions. So it's either a group course virtually or that do it your own pace with a Q&A. Um, and I work one-on-one with people, you know, reviewing their documents, helping them get things in order, and then helping them plan their family meeting and how to run it and how to invite. So there's a whole template that they can work with on how to get this important conversation started. And then um, I do also help facilitate family meetings for those that just don't feel comfortable doing it themselves. I'll be there to get the conversation started and keep it, keep it going and navigate the conversation. But the one thing I like to tell everyone, this isn't a one and done conversation. It's something that <laughs> should be, uh, you know, at least review your own paperwork annually. It's your birthday gift to yourself. Mm-hmm. Go through and make sure everything's the same and it's how you want it. And then when things change, call that family meeting again and say, okay, I've now had this diagnosis. So I want you to know if this happens, this is how I'm thinking. Or, you know, we last met when I was 65, now I'm 70. Mm-hmm. Or when I was 50 and now I'm 60, you know, so I just wanted to update you. And it can be light and it can be fun. And, um, it, but it, it just gives people all from yourself plan. They, they have a plan to follow that roadmap to follow if anything should happen. I love that. And thank you so much for noting that it's not one and done because, you know, typically we'll say, okay, well, I check that off and we do forget about it. It's just like, well, and that goes back to what you were saying about your surgery. You know, you knew that, okay, let me just review my documents again and make sure that everything I want is still current. So yes, it's not a one and done. Yeah. That's why I say the birthday gift to ourselves is to review it. Mm-hmm. Great points. Great points. And I could see where your services would be beneficial to so many people and families because 
For some people, it is very hard to talk about. Yes, it is. Let's face it. Who really, who really wants to talk about dying? It's an, you know, it's an emotional process. Even when I go through it, I get a little emotional because, uh, we want to live, we want to yeah. live and experience life. But one of the things about getting this work done is that then we tr can truly live life and we can go forward knowing that, hey, we have a plan. We, we have it all in order. If anything happens, I know I'm covered and I know that my family will be okay. Mm -hmm. So it helps us to truly then be able to live our lives fully. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing all of that wonderful and very helpful information, Maureen. Before I end, I'd like to ask my guests these two questions. The first one is, what is something that you've learned in life that you would like to share with the audience? One of the things I've learned has come from me being an oncology nurse is that life is short. We just don't know what's around the corner tomorrow. So to live life to the fullest each day and grasp the opportunities that are within our means um, and to really embrace living the life that we want to. We get to choose and um, so that if something does happen, we don't have that regret I was talking about, if only I had done this because we did everything within our power. That's, and so that's one, to live life each day to its fullest and um, to say the things that need to be said. Mm -hmm. Both are so important, you know, just to your own quality of life and happiness. It's, it's so important to do the things you want to do and say those and very important things that need to be said. So thank you for sharing that. And the second question is, what is next for you? Uh, what is next? I am, I'm really excited about, I just told you uh, that I had taken my online program and made it into a self-paced program. So I'm super excited about that because uh, not everyone feels comfortable sharing in a group and it's something that they can do at their own pace. There's video recordings and documents to support it and things to um, get the work done. So I'm excited. I'm on a mission. What's next to me is just to keep this conversation going about getting the work done, getting this important documentation done so that uh, when life happens, we're prepared. Wonderful. And Maureen, if people are interested in connecting with you and learning more about Radiant Morning and how you can support them, where can they find you? Well, I have a Facebook group, a uh, Facebook page, but also just go to, they can email me at Maureen. Um, my name's M-A-U-R-E-E-N at Radiant Morning. Morning is in grief, like with a, you did not, morning is the dawn morning. of the day. Um, <laughs> radiantmorning.com, Maureen at radiantmorning.com. And I'd love to have a chat. Wonderful. See how I could help people. Thank you. And I, I know that the work that you do is so important and it is helping save a lot of people stress drama and trauma so thank you for all that you do and before we end today i i just want to say how much i appreciate you for coming on and educating us about this very tough topic and um just keep doing what you're doing maureen we we need this Oh, thank you so much, Talia. You know, I think what you do with people with cancer is so powerful because let's face it, it's a diagnosis none of us want to get, but 
um, we do, we do get those diagnoses and to be able to have someone to shepherd us through is so powerful. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate your time, Maureen. Before we leave, I'd like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you appreciate the show, drop a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For notes from the show, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. After you check out the show notes, head over to my gift shop and show yourself or someone special in your life some love with gifts of encouragement, hope, and positive affirmations. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon. Bye.